That is outstanding how good the platforms are working. I know the Facebook folks are in a little bit early. I hope you guys are getting settled. Have a glass of wine. The work week is over. Uh, we are on the verge of uh, arguably one of America's most favorite holidays. So we're going to give the Facebook folks a couple seconds to get settled. I see Zoom attendees really jumping in. Barb Randall, Debbie Long, Jan Kiefer, Jean Golden, seemingly a new name, Jeff and Jane Greasy, uh, also students of our, of our first guests. Uh, Jim Brubaker from Colorado, Julie Fogarty, Kim Vance, Mark Shalinor. Mark is a name I don't know. Mark, we're gonna be fast friends. Nelson Holden. So we're gonna give this about another 30 seconds as everything spins up and then we'll begin at the top of the hour with an outstanding episode tonight. Uh, we have, I'm really excited, so I'm very much looking forward to this because we're going to dig deep into some very, very popular questions as it relates to uh, our favorite beverage and some of our favorite foods. So, Jan Angelo, hello, sir. Good to see you. Doug Rutherford, I think I saw Doug earlier today. Doug is, I believe, in the North Country in Minnesota, uh, where I'm sure it's a little bit chillier than it is in, in behind me in Naples, uh, where the vineyard that we have is located. Um, but we are coming up at eight o'clock. You let me know when we're ready to hit it and we will get this show on the road. All right, the production studio is saying, go ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, you've done it 36 weeks in a row, nine months since the insanity began. I can hear the roar of the crowd. Uh, everybody is hopefully safely ensconced with a glass of the good stuff. Uh, hopefully it's from Cellar Angels, but it, it's okay if it's not. We're, we're equal uh, imbibers. Uh, Sip 36 is going to be pretty special tonight because it's with a dear, dear friend of ours who has had perhaps one of the most profound impacts on our wine knowledge and wine education over the past 12 or 13 years. And we're going to get to that in a second. But every week we get an email that says, how are people in the chat room or in the attendees drinking the wine in advance of knowing what's on? And the thing they do is they actually go to the Cellar Angels website, which I will do right here. And they purchase the SIP virtual tasting kit. So now this is your key to the magic. So go to the Cellar Angels website, grab the SIP virtual tasting kit. You will have ample wine for the next four consecutive Fridays. You'll be set for a month. Uh, Zoetic is the wine we're gonna be talking about this evening with the Thanksgiving dishes. And we're gonna get that in a moment. As you can see, the wine following that is Blue Rock, a fantastic Cab Franc. And that is one not to miss coming up in that episode, December 4th. But that's how people have the wine. So go to the Cellar Angels website and you can take care of it there. And I, I think it bears repeating that, you know, this is episode 36. And while we started this nine months ago when shelter in place was first invoked in Chicago, uh, we didn't think it was gonna go 36 months. Now we think it could easily go, or 36 weeks. Now we think it could probably go 36 more. So hopefully fingers crossed that it doesn't. Uh, but one thing we've learned about this is that there is a tremendous amount of thirst for wine knowledge and access to these winemakers. And so it's our pleasure to, to bring them into your living rooms, out onto your patios, uh, into your family rooms. And we're humbled by the support. And as we like to say, we have supporters at Cellar Angels. We, we don't have customers because every single one of you that comes to these episodes that purchases the wine has expressed a vested interest in, in helping this company succeed. And you're all part of it. And we can't do it without you. So uh, we are thrilled to be able to share these beverages with you and the access with you. And tonight is no different. 
So 10 years ago, we went on this journey and our first guest, and I'm not saying that jokingly this time, we actually have more than one guest. So our first guest this week is, as I said, uh, a friend of the company, personal friend of ours, taught both myself and Mission Control more about wine than we had ever hoped to learn. And uh, without further ado, I'd like you all to give it up and a big round of applause virtually for John Lalaganis. No. <laughs> Uh, and we will probably learn at some point in time how to actually pipe in music and, and maybe have an entrance or anything like that. But, but at this point in time, uh, it's a very low budget show, John. So we're spent on the good products. We spend it all on the good products. And I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank our wardrobe sponsors, of which there are two. And this is actually Zoetic, uh, Zoetic Wines, because we're featuring Kim Vance's Pinot Noir. And Kim was kind enough to send us a shirt. And by the way, if you want to also be a wardrobe sponsor, I said this last week or a week before, I don't care if it's even wine. It could be a pizza place, bowling alley. You send it in, I'll wear it. That's the type of show we are. We're givers at Cellar Angels. Uh, but John, let's talk about you, which is my favorite thing to do is talk about our guests. And I know you love that. Uh, but oh, if I send you some shirts, you'll wear them? A hundred percent. I know what you're going to send me too. Tank top, <laughs> Uh, shard, chartreuse. I got a really nice tube top for you. Maybe in a nice aqua color. Aqua clashes with me. If you have anything fuchsia, that is a much better compliment to my eyes. Yes. So we were trying to figure this out before the show. John and I probably met in 2007, 2007, 2008, when we, Jeff Greasy, you do not need to see me in a tube top. Thank you for commenting. Um, we, as most people know, Denise and I used to own a wine store. And from time to time, uh, John, who's an educator, John is an author, John is a sommelier, John is uh, really all things passionate about food and wine. And it was his educational prowess that really drew us to him. And he would uh, assist us often time to time. We were introduced by another wine friend. And when we needed expert educational help for the store, John was our only call. And more often than not, he answered the call and would come in and, and help us. And working with him side by side, it, it was we that were the sponges because everything John said from a food and wine standpoint, we just soaked up and it was awesome. So I think John, that's that's where it started, uh, probably 07 or early 08. Awesome. And so now your food and wine journey, tell me a little bit about uh, where'd you grow up and when, what was the wine epiphany? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't really think there's a wine epiphany per se, but I think that with um, maybe a lot of people in a profession, sometimes there's, there's more of an evolution over time, kind of uh, clarity as time goes on. Um, my grandparents and my father owned a restaurant in the city of Chicago for about 35 years. Uh, they sold it when I was a young kid, but I still remember going there and being a part of it. And for me, uh, there's a very strong connection uh, emotionally to that, to that experience or those experiences. Uh, my grandmother, uh, I have vivid memories of my grandma working in the front of the restaurant, you know, ringing out guests, seating guests, serving guests. She was like doing the whole show in the front of the house. Uh, my grandpa was in the back cooking. Things that I saw, you, you don't really wanna see. Uh, this was back in the 70s, and so the things that were going on don't happen today, hopefully not, but uh, it, it was kind of a really um, very interesting experience growing in that environment to some degree. They sold it when I was a kid, 
And then, you know, boom, I'm going to school. I'm a kid. And uh, my mom says one summer, she's like, you need to get a job because you're on my nerves. Get out of the house. Probably like many of us. And I was going to uh, say, your, your mom is not the first mom to say that. I think. And, uh, you know, she drove me around. She took me to place to place to place. She's like, okay, go there, fill out an application, go there, fill out an application. So, um, you know, it was a restaurant. I, I, I went in, I filled out an application. The guy talked to me for like 10, 15 minutes. He's like, you're hired. And I'm like, oh, cool. Okay. What am I going to do? He's like, you're going to be a bus boy. All right, cool. So I did that for three months. And I tell you that three month period was, was such an incredible experience. Um, and, and you were 18, 19, you said, um, 15, 15. And yeah, uh, what was 15, the Peter Glick? 15. Peter Glick is interested to know which restaurant was this in Chicago? So uh, it wasn't in Chicago. Um, actually, we lived in the suburbs at this point. Uh, we had moved from Chicago uh, to the suburbs, Northwest suburbs. And there was a restaurant called Stonegate. And it was located in Lake Zurich. It was the corner of Rand and 22. And it was uh, kind of a casual pizza, pasta, sandwiches, steak, sort of like what you'd expect in, in, the, uh, in the 80s. Right. And it was um, a wonderful experience because it was sort of the first true experience I get to see people eating uh, dining, drinking, everybody on the table. Now, keep in mind, this is back in, uh, this is 1985. Everybody has bottles of pink wine on the table. Everybody in the restaurant, pink wine everywhere. Everybody in around their sort of age of 30, 40, 50 years old. So we're talking baby boomers. And this is the sort of pivotal point in actually the wine industry. Um, everybody was drinking white Zinfandel. I don't know if anybody's familiar with it out there. Um, yep. This is sort of the drink of choice. And, um, you know, it was oh, a boy. back in the day, it was uh, very important to uh, connecting people that um, maybe didn't have a palate for wine. It's very unlike kind of younger people today. Back then, right. most boomers didn't really have that experience of growing up. So they, when they came to wine, it was sort of a little bit of later in life. So you're talking about 30, 40-year-olds all drinking wine, not totally really sophisticated at that point, but they're all drinking wine. For me, that was really cool to see. You know, I'm walking around, clearing plates, setting tables. I'm hearing of people on a first date. I hear some people going through the process of a divorce. I mean, you know, some people are there after the, you know, burial of a family member. It's kind By of- By the way, all, all three things have white Zinfandel in common. Just going to say that. Perhaps, right? So, I mean, as infamous as that wine is, though, it's pretty pivotal as, you know, when we think about people kind of having um, almost a gateway, an entryway to drinking something, right? Like you could say about many different things, sort of like the gateway drug of wine. Um, nowadays. Oh, absolutely. I mean, White Zinfandel then really spawned not too far after the whole wine cooler sensation and Bartles and James and, yeah. and then all of that brought it together. So then you, you, you were just kind of a sponge there listening to things and, and decided to make that part of the career choice? No, not really yet. Um, I really wanted to get into food at that point. So I spent three months seeing all this kind of cool stuff, people eating, drinking. And then I'm like, you know, I really like food. I like to eat food. I like to make food myself. And at this point, my grandmother and my grandfather had already spent time with me in their own kitchen at home, teaching me how to cook traditional Greek dishes. And so I felt very connected to food. And so this sort of evolution now, here I'm in a restaurant and you know my boss would talk to me about the Greek side of my family, the Greek dishes, the Greek food. 
And so, you know, one day he's like, hey, why don't you make uh, some food for us and we'll sell it in the restaurant as a daily special. And I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, well, why don't you make a batch for me first and then we'll taste it and then we'll see if we're gonna run it. So I did that and it went through and he's like, great, you know what? We wanna promote you. And I'm like, really? I get a promotion after three months? Wow, I get to be a cook? Cause I really wanna be a cook. Nope, not gonna be a cook yet. I'm like, but you want me to make this food? Well, yeah, that's just your you know, introductory thing here. You gotta do something else first. I'm like, oh, okay, well, well, what am I gonna do? He's like, you're gonna be a dishwasher. Oh my God, dishwasher, huh? So I had to do that, prove myself, blood, sweat, tears. And then after that went, and he's like, all right, now we're moving you on. Now you're prep cook. And then you become, you know, uh, pizza cook. And then you become line cook. And then you become assistant head line cook. So it was sort of a progression in this place. I spent maybe two and a half years um, in my early days. I was working full-time in high school and I loved it. And it was really amazing. So, you know, this was my first full-time paid position of working and it was pretty pivotal, I guess, but it really just sort of evolved after that even more so through every experience and every company I ever worked for. When, um, when did they sell the restaurant? Uh, they sold it, I think in 77. Okay. Cause I mean, it still retained its name afterwards because uh, there's several folks. Oh, in wait, the wait, chat wait, you're have... talking Stonegate or are you talking my yes. grandparents? And Dip Stonegate. Stonegate. You know what? It's hard to say because it went through multiple groups of owners Correct. It. it was reconcepted as a Greek restaurant, a Mexican restaurant. Uh, it, it's been all sorts of right. things. I think it's open now uh, as some, it might be a Mexican restaurant last I heard. It's interesting because several people uh, that have lived in the area, in the Barrington area, Lake Zurich area in the chat, they've actually been to it, but you're right. And Denise and I, when we lived in Lake Zurich, it was still there. It had been repurposed as a, a number of different uh, restaurants. And like you said, different owners. So, so then let's leapfrog to the professional career. You graduated college and you're still in the Chicago area. You were intelligent enough. Well, maybe this is questionable to become a Cub fan uh, because that's just excruciatingly painful up until 2016. I know there's some White Sox fans on uh, the chat. That's their fault. Uh, but how did, you, how did you leave college and then where did you go in the food industry? And, and I want to touch on that for a second. Then I'm really fascinated by you starting to write books and, and become an author. Yeah, so uh, when I grad, my, my undergraduate degree is from the University of Wisconsin Stout. This is in Menominee, Wisconsin. It's uh, Northwest, about an hour east of the Twin Cities, Minnesota. And I graduated with a degree in uh, hospitality and tourism management with a concentration in food and beverage, concentration in training and human resource development. Uh, when I graduated, um, and I had been working uh, during college as well, I was working in the front of the house capacity, uh, mostly during college, um, bartending and serving. I made my way over to, um, I went graduated over to the Twin Cities and I lived in St. Paul and worked in a couple of restaurants over there. And uh, I became a general manager. And in addition to that, I was sort of feeling like I needed to be challenged. So I simultaneously was running a restaurant as a GM and also getting my uh, master's degree. Uh, when I finished that, um, which took about, I was there maybe two, two and a half years or so, uh, running restaurants and finishing up my advanced degree, uh, then I wanted to move back to Chicago uh, area, uh, be closer to family. And um, I had always had a dream of working for uh, Let Us Entertain You. I had read about them for years. This is a company that was founded in 1971, Richard Melman, the whole idea of like how he created these concepts and these very unique, successful 
individual type of concepts was very appealing to me. And when I had come back to Chicago, I had, you know, gone through months of interviewing with them. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up working at um, Shaw's Crab House, if anyone's familiar with it. There was another concept. It was, um, I believe it was Tucci Milan uh, that I was working as well. And, um, you know, as I was working there, I, again, was you know, managing, but also focusing on wine, focusing on cocktails, focusing on beer. And um, yeah, and ultimately uh, at some point there was an ad in the paper and it was an ad from a school, a culinary school called the Cooking and Hospitality Institute of Chicago. It's no longer around, no longer there. And they were looking for a hospitality management teacher. And I said, oh, you know, what, what the heck? I'm going to apply for it because I always had this thing in my head of being uh, um, an educator and educating on this passionate topic that I love. And uh, they called me in and it was like the worst interview ever uh, to the point that after the interview was over, I pleaded. I'm like, you know, I, I know it wasn't a great interview, but let me have a second shot, you know. And uh, she's like, no, no, you actually did well. You did better than all of the other candidates. You know, and then she's like, and, and, and I know that's a that's a always a, a recurrent theme in interviewing prep and tips that if you feel it goes bad, beg for the job afterwards. It's usually <laughs> always <laughs> literally what I did. But, you know, the funny thing is, she's like, you got to come back and do a demonstration because we don't just hire people just based on a resume and a conversation. You've got to actually do a demonstration. So we want you to come in and we want you to keep a top teach a topic for 30 minutes to all of our faculty, to all of our employees and select students. So like, holy cow. And so I go in and it was the weirdest thing ever. I had to present in front of all my peers or potential peers, great experience, but holy cow. I got electrocuted during my uh, presentation. <laughs> um, I had, it was the middle of summer and I had a suit on. It was like a double breasted suit. I was looking all fancy. This was back in the late nineties when double breasted, I guess was more uh, appropriate. And um, I remember being just sweating and dripping. I was so hot cause I got there too early. I'm waiting out in my car. And I remember wiping my, my, my forehead, not thinking. Now all of a sudden I got this massive stain of sweat on my arm. And I had so just much good, good first impression after good first impression. I know, right? But they still hired me, and uh, you know that was uh, that was in the late '90s, and I stayed with them for a number of years, and uh, maybe some 10, 11 years. And was there, uh, go ahead. Was there anybody in that 10 or 11 year span, from a food standpoint, or a wine standpoint, or a cocktail standpoint, that you looked at as well? This is a, a mentor. This is someone that I look up to, or kind of and were, were inspired by. Yeah, um, I think there's lots of random people, uh, random people along the way. You know, I, I could certainly, from an early stage, my grandparents, without a doubt, there's sort of this emotional bond, emotional connection. And I would probably add anybody that probably goes into food and wine somehow has some sort of this emotional connection with something, whether it's the land, the grapes, uh, being a kid, roaming vineyards, uh, making food with your mom, dad, something like that. That was clear early on. Um, the Food Network... Um, I would say had to some degree an element of inspiration. Uh, I would say there's uh, some classic sh TV chefs. I mean, Julia Child is one of them. Uh, watching her and watching the reruns of Julia Child certainly was, was really cool because you see this person who had this incredible energy and had the ability to educate people in a very non uh, sort of uh, intimidating way. 
and not and technical. I really sort of looked at that and being right. not intimidating and having this passion, excitement, it made people want to learn. So that definitely inspired me. Uh, but, you know, there's random people along the way, I think, that kind of filled that. Well, here, here's, I think, what's interesting, too, is, is your passion for both the topics of food and wine and even the craft cocktails is, is fairly evident and contagious. I mean, you're, you're an author of three books. You are, there are a variety of programs that people from a sommelier standpoint or our wine service can get into. Uh, it seems that you were not satisfied with all of the market programs that were out there and decided to start your own, uh, the wine professional program. So walk me through a little bit of, of that. And then we're going to get into your next venture and, and bring on our next guest. Yeah. So well, talk about the wine professional program and, and just the, the author of three books, which by the way, uh, I've read all of them and they're all fantastic for the people that are interested in being a little bit geeky with regards to beverages. Yeah, um, let me start out with the books because I think it's more of a, a progression of evolution. So at one point in my career, as I was managing restaurants, um, my, my, my education in wine was, and, and really other beverages, was really through osmosis, just learning from the people that taught me, um, you know, learning whatever I could learn, what I, I would read a wine spectator, I would read wine enthusiast, I would have some wine books. One in particular one was pretty important to me was an author, uh, Kevin Zraeli, if anyone's heard of Kevin Zraeli. He was yep. the opening wine uh, director for Windows on the World. And he's written a book, he published, republishes it every single year. Uh, I don't know what edition he's on right now, but uh, I, you know, early on, um, I still thought there was so much to learn about wine, but I didn't feel, besides a few select books like Israelis, I didn't really feel that books were written in a user-friendly sort of format. Um, it was, many of the books were written where the first chapter is, you know, Burgundy, France, and then right. it goes to Champagne and and I'm like, well, this makes no sense to me. I mean, I, I, I like Burgundy, I like Champagne, but the point is, the, the sort of uh, pedagogy behind writing a book really needs to be thought out with who's your intended reader and what is a logical progression of teaching. So, you know, I would read these books and they're diving into like, you know, talking about all of these appellations, like what is in Maurice Saint-Denis and what is Gervais Chambertin and, you know, what's a Merceau and all of this is like, wait, uh, there's no- No, that's, cha that's chapter one. Yeah, and that's chapter, well, maybe chapter one, chapter two, but the point is it was the first thing they would really dive into. And I just, coming from that, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Sort of put that in the back of my head. But the other element was about wine and food. A lot of the things that I read in the day uh, when I was learning about wine and managing uh, restaurants with wine was the wine and food theory, the concepts were very vague. They're very antiquated. Uh, you, you may have all heard uh, the concept of, you know, how do you pair wine and food? Well, well, white meats and fish go with white wines and red meats go with red wines. And I, I'd say that that's an awesome bit of advice for my parents who are retired and are 80 years old. Or grandparents. I, I would say that's great advice. But for somebody who's in the industry, for somebody who's in the business of actually educating their staff, to then educate the customers that want that direction, there are no real clear, concise uh, bit of knowledge out there. 
So right. having also gone to culinary school and utilizing my experience, I really, my first book, which is on the screen right now is that cover, was really about the essentials of wine and food pairing. There's two hardcore chapters in there about kind of going with principles and, and a sort of three-step approach that we can, I think, discuss later on, but this three-step approach is really pivotal. And now when I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that I was the first to come up with this, but I think that I might've been one of the first to actually formulate it in a manner that sort of made sense. Um, and, and then that led to the second book. Well, uh, over time, uh, then there was this, you know, uh, this need to do more education on more topics than just wine. There's also beer, spirits, sake, cider, coffee, tea, uh, cocktails. And again, a lot of the books out there are sort of like these small little coffee table, pretty looking books, or they're like these massive book of just say cocktails or you know, there was no real sort of foundational book that was written with a sense of pedagogy to it that made sense going from chapter to chapter. So this second book was, um, was incorporating those other beverages in addition to wine. And that was really popular, it went over very well, it was very successful. I, I must add this one right here, uh, this first book, the only reason they wanted to do a, another book with me is because this one, I think it's somewhere upwards of about seven or 8,000 copies at this point sold and this was published in 2009 so and it's still selling so that's kind of a good thing does need to be updated but then they said okay well i guess he knows what he's talking about the publisher so let's do another book and i have a co-author uh albert schmidt uh originally was out of louisville kentucky so he really brought this wonderful kind of cocktail side to uh this book and then there was the uh next edition it was actually a fourth edition of this book, which kind of elevated what we had done in the previous previous edition. And so this is kind of one of the, the current ones that I had done, which was published uh, maybe a few years ago. So, so that's the book side of it. So the author side of it, you, you have that component, you have the culinary side of it, you have the sommelier side of it, you, you start a new wine program, and now your next adventure is you're going to be starting a podcast with uh, another food expert. And I, I do want to hit upon the wine program because you, I, I mean, everyone's familiar with the quartermaster sommeliers. Everyone's, many people are familiar with ISG, uh, masters of wine, and none of those appealed to you or you wanted to say, okay, I need to come at this from a different angle as well and start my own foundation and certification system. Um, yeah. So again, coming up in wine, there wasn't a lot of direction and there weren't a lot of organizations actually teaching and educating about wine. There were some organizations such as the Court of Master Sommelier, uh, the Wine and Spirits Trust, um, or two such organizations that were certifying people. There wasn't much education. Uh, there was, you know, here's a guide, here's an outline, read some books, come and take a test, you'll do a blind tasting, you'll do a written test. There wasn't a lot of direction. Um, later on in my career, I actually went through a wine program, uh, and the program, as you said, was ISG, which is short for International Sommelier Guild, and so that was the organization I went through, and the main reason I went through and selected that one is because they actually educated you, very right. different than a lot of the other ones. Um, it was sort of my take. I like hands-on. I want an instructor at the front of the classroom to guide me. Not necessarily needing holding hand, but I want to hear their perspective. I want to hear their take on wine. And then, I, okay, I'll read all the resources, but it was a really great experience. The ISG uh, is a three-tiered organization 
with their three levels and I went through all three levels. And then afterwards, the company had asked me to actually be one of their educators. So I did that um, on the side while I was also teaching at another university at the time. So I did teach in the ISG as well. So, so here's the thing, like, uh, all right, ISG was good. Um, but I think that, you know, as an entrepreneur kind of mindset that I have, I think like, well, I think it could be so much better. You know, I think it'd be so much better. So uh, at around this time, um, I was going to a new university. And one of the things they talked about was me developing a wine program. And I was like, perfect. One of the reasons I got hired uh, likely was because of my background with these other, uh, with this other wine organization. So um, what happened is I'm, I'm a founder of the wine professional program and it is a three tiered uh, certification program similar to the ISG, but different. And um, we believe better, better for people that like instructor led, hands-on. And each of our three levels are very intense. Um, you, the first level, to be a level one uh, wine professional. We don't really use the term sommelier until you get to maybe level three because becoming a, a sommelier or whatever title you want to use, beverage director, wine professional, um, it takes time. You don't right. just class and, and become that. Just like you don't just go to school and all of a sudden acquire a chef title. That comes through time, that comes through an organization uh, kind of uh, uh, giving you this title formally to some degree, uh, experience. So with this, uh, with this school, we developed this program. The first level is a six week program, level one. At the end of that, you take a test and you know, it's a pretty grueling five hour examination. Uh, you know, if you pass grade, if you don't, you retest or, or what, then you can go on to level two, if you choose to level two is a nine week program, uh, which takes level one and, and is just more rigorous and intense. Again, at the ninth week, you take a, a five hour examination, much more intensive, you know, you're doing blind tasting, you're doing uh, theory, you're doing essay, you're doing service, you're doing wine and food pairing. So it's a very intensive examination. If you choose after level two, you'd go to level three. Level three is our, is our top level. Uh, this is a 26 week uh, class wow. course where it's a very intensive. And um, again, at the end of the actually 24th week, we do two weeks. So we're doing 10 hours of testing, uh, which are again, focused on service, focused on theory, essay, um, wine and food, uh, wine and food pairing, as well as blind tasting. So to give you kind of an idea of the level of rigor from one end to the next, in the level one, the student does, um, they do multiple forms of assessment, but the blind tasting itself is four wines blind. And then level two is six wines blind. And then level three is, I believe we do about 22 beverages blind. So imagine a student table, a desk, from one end to the other end, it's complete beverage, 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 beverage. We don't just test on wine. We also do tests on other products as well, like beer and spirits. I, I don't have to imagine it. I lived it. We called that college, but there was far less testing. <laughs> um, I, I do want to uh, touch on, I want to apply some of that knowledge because we, we are coming up on, as I mentioned at the onset of the show, probably America's favorite holiday. And, and it will be arguably the most unique Thanksgiving holiday in all of our lives. And I hope we never have to experience it this way again. 
Uh, but a great many people do a tremendous amount of entertaining on Thanksgiving, serving 20, 30, 40 people. And now that's going to be completely trimmed down. But everyone still has food pairing, wine pairing questions. And I also know that um, you are getting ready to embark upon a, a podcast with a very special person. And I, I would love to bring him in from the green room and, and, and talk a little bit about that. And why don't you introduce our next guest? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, there's this next guest is uh, is a pretty cool guy. Um, I have known uh, uh, him for, I, I think we were kind of trying to figure out how long we've known each other, but about 20 years, I think is, a, is about right. Um, we initially had met uh, back at um, the Cooking and Hospitality Institute, which ultimately became Le Cordon Bleu. Um, but this uh, this gentleman is a chef educator, um, Wook Kang. Uh, Wook was born in South Korea, but raised in Chicago. So he's a Korean American. And, um, you know, he's not only a colleague, but he's also a really good friend and longtime friend. Uh, chef Wook has, um, he's an inspiration to not only his students, but also to the people that he works with. He holds uh, a large amount of experience in very well-known establishments uh, in, in and around Chicago. He also holds some very coveted titles uh, as a chef. Um, one of them uh, is, is from the American Culinary Federation, which is the foremost uh, trade association within uh, the culinary field. But he is uh, granted a uh, title, a certificate as a certified executive chef, otherwise known as the CEC. He also holds certifications such as a master certified food executive. He's also certified food and beverage executive. So in addition to his experience, he's got so many credentials behind him. And I'd like to introduce uh, Chef Wook Kane. Hey, John. Chef hey, Wook Kane in the house. Thank you for having me. Well, you you are a delight, and that that introduction is pretty impressive because we were talking a little bit about. Uh, I have to some pay John twenty dollars after, so. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, we talked about kind of the matriculation in wine guilds and and wine uh, programs. There's also something similar, and and John had mentioned, you know, the American Culinary Federation and the CEC. I don't think people recognize how difficult or what you have to do to achieve that level of, of recognition. So give them a, a brief 30 to 45 second or a minute overview of what you had to do and how long you had to be sure. in that area to, to achieve that. So for this exam, it's essentially a black box or a mystery basket, if you will. And there are set ingredients you have to use, but they kind of make it more or less freestyle. And ultimately what they wanna see and assess is your palate and then also your techniques. And so with core ingredients that they say they have to use, when you really look at some of the foods that you have to work with, it really does force you to think about what will pair with what or how you want to form this appetizer or how you wanna form a salad course and ultimately the entree. Because given what they give you, it's actually quite interesting and complicated and bare at the same time. And so um, in addition to that, you have to make a salad course, you have to make a seafood appetizer, which needed to include specifically salmon and lobster. And then you also needed to do a fabrication of a poultry. Uh, in this scenario, they asked me to do chicken. And then that needed to be served with a vegetable component, a starch component, a side, as well as also a garnish. But all of those needed to have at least four plates of each. And so a total of 12 plates all plated 
in 15 minutes in consecutive order. So it would have to be the seafood appetizer first, then the salad course, kind of acting as like a palate cleanser, if you will. And then you also have the chicken entree. And, you know, it's quite a feat um, because I'm, I'm kind of actually on the other end now. Um, I've also, through the ACF, became an approved culinary evaluator. So now I'm also the person that also you're, evaluates. You're not, allowed, you're not allowed over to my house. <laughs> so, so I'm actually on the other end where I evaluate people that want to be certified. And I find myself kind of lucky in a way, if you will, because I passed. And I see the struggles that a lot of chefs have when they take this exam. And, you know, for me, kind of being on the opposite end, I, it, it kind of makes me appreciate kind of what they are going through because I, a lot of them really try. And right. it just kind of comes down sometimes to luck. Uh, sometimes it also comes down to their talent. Uh, but a lot of these chefs are very talented, but it's a hard test that I think people may not really understand until they've really kind of seen it through a different lens. I can't even imagine it. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about some food and wine things that I'm sure people are going to be asking questions about. But I also want to say hello to Chad Angelo, winemaker, who John is quite familiar with your undergrad university uh, and the cocktails that are consumed there. He has a lot of friends that went to Stout. Uh, Ellie Sanford Moore, Hans and Caitlin Greasy in Colorado. Thanks for joining Todd Lancioni in Gulf, Illinois. Uh, he has a question. He normally, the Lancioni family normally hosts and entertains 40 to 50 people. Uh, going to be very trimmed down this year, and, and so to speak. I'm going to give you a lot of Thanksgiving terms. They're, they're underdressing everything. It's going to be, I'll stop while I'm behind. Uh, but Peter Glick, hello. Let, let's get into, if I could have the, uh, the control studio put up my most favorite Thanksgiving dish that I grew up with from the age of two to 30. Uh, this was the staple in, in my house. Uh, you guys probably know it well. Chef, was this at all, was this at all <laughs> involved in any of the cooking classes? So I will say this, and I know it might sound a little bit backwards. And um, growing up as a Korean American, uh, this was actually one thing that I actually idolized because <laughs> interestingly enough, this is all I saw. And growing up, all I ate was mostly Korean food until I became a teenager. And when I had the opportunity to eat that, it really was like angels singing in heaven because I finally got this and I finally tried it. <laughs> now I can kind of laugh about it. But at the time, I thought, wow, I can actually have this now because I know what it is. Because <laughs> I would see it all the time on TV. Uh, it would kind of be used more or less as a gag or a joke, I think, in some sitcoms and cartoons. But, you know, after I had it, I was like, wow, this is kind of OK. Yeah. Oh, it was not a joke in our house. It was literally, that was how, I didn't know cranberry existed in the other way for probably 25 years of my life. I, I would agree. I think just like a lot of Americans, that's probably, they were just this thing and just the same as you. Because I think we all, we always, and I think I can say this as a fact, we always grow, we always think what we grew up with is fact. Right. We don't what, know what, what we don't know, right? Go ahead, John. Right. I'm sorry. Oh, we don't know what we don't know? 
Yeah, I, I would love to hear, uh, I mean, John and I think, I mean, we both grew up in the Midwest. We, we, I'd be curious, uh, Chef, compare and contrast kind of the Korean American Thanksgiving dishes with the traditional turkey stuffing, uh, unidentified fruit, some compote, whatever is at grandma's house, uh, which is still has a shelf life that's undetermined. You know, compare a little bit of those dishes and, and, and then we're gonna get into the wine section of this and, and tell me, I'd love to hear you two discuss kind of what you grew up with in the flavors and, and what you're looking to do next week. So for myself, uh, my family actually never really celebrated Thanksgiving uh, up until I was probably about 13 years old. So kind of like the early teen years. Um, and so I immigrated here with my parents because I had no choice in the say, but uh, they took me with them here. And uh, growing up, it was really Korean food, Korean food, Korean food. I would only eat American food when I would be in school. Or maybe- and what, were, what were some examples of the Korean food and, and the cuisine and dishes? So it would be things that like bulgogi, which is uh, a marinated beef. It literally translates to fire beef. Uh, or I would have, <laughs> or I would have kalbi, which is a marinated short rib that could either be braised or stewed. A uh, rice is always a staple, uh, as well as a lot of condiments, because Korean cuisine is based off of a lot of side dishes, uh, which is known as panchan. But you know, when we got, or when I became thirteen, my family had a very good uh, another Korean American family that were very very close with us, and they hosted more or less a traditional American Thanksgiving dinner. And myself, I've actually never had it until that point. And mm. so when I went, I was really blown away. And I thought they did a really good job because they also able to also intertwine a lot of Korean flavors, if you will, not necessarily into the turkey, but as side accompaniment. So right. in addition to having turkey, mashed potatoes, we would also have dumplings. Or we would also have like Korean noodles called panchan. And so whether or not everything really paired well together or not, it was kind of the best of both worlds, if you will. And sure. that's something that I always kind of continued because uh, later on, once, um, you know, everybody became older and everybody kind of got a lot more busier, uh, I kind of took the reins and I just kind of did it with my own family. And I took kind of their philosophy, if you will, into what I do in uh, the yearly tradition of Thanksgiving. I'll always have a turkey and we're not a big family. It's, it, it was uh, just four of us, my father, my mom, my brother and I, uh, but I loved buying a 22 pound turkey and just roasting the whole thing. Cause there's just something about a whole roasted bird that I think is just so picturesque. It's that whole Norman Rockwell picture. And Very that's always so, what yeah. I want to emulate. And so, this year will obviously be different, but uh, just kind of having that growing up, it, it really changed me on how I want to do Thanksgiving. And even just a couple of years ago, I started really doing a lot more regional American foods for Thanksgiving. It wasn't just the roasted turkey with the mashed potatoes and the green bean casserole. Uh, I would make things like jambalaya, or I would make things like uh, shrimp and grits. And so it really kind of became this ultimate food fest. And so I think that's a big part of also what Thanksgiving can be uh, for a lot of Americans. 
Completely agree. It's it's just a whole bunch of diff different dishes. And then when you have combined families and exactly. three or four of the children get married and then their wives or husbands have different traditions and different cuisines, and then it all comes together. Uh, so I completely agree with you on that. John, on the wine aspect. Now, what some people are drinking tonight is the Zoetic Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. And it is from the Hopkiln Vineyard. And people that know Cellar Angels probably know Kim Vance because we featured a bunch of Kim's wines before. Uh, she's a, she's a self-professed clone geek. So she, she gets into the nitty gritty with regards to certain clones, certain vineyard blocks. And, and we love her for that exact uh, addiction, if you will. But walk us through kind of a, a, a structured, professional assessment of wine, what you're looking for, and then give me some of the attributes of this wine. And then we'll, then Chef will we'll also talk about, and John as well, pairing this with cuisine on the Thanksgiving table. Mm -hmm. Well, I think first off, when we talk about assessing a wine, there's a couple ways to do it, right? In the, in the program, we, we are looking for a systematic assessment to basically break down the wine and talk very specific, very detailed, through that description, after we assess it, you don't even have to taste the wine. If you were to read someone's tasting notes, in theory, you would know what that wine is just based on those tasting notes. So there's really a very precise, specific use of words and language and concepts that we use. Um, so that's a very precise way, but there's another approach, which is what we kind of all do. You get a glass of wine and you, you, know, you hold it up and you swirl it and you smell it. Oh, wow, it smells great, right? Um, you're kind of assessing it as in like you like it, you not like it. In the program, we kind of assess not about like or not like. We assess it based on what is the wine. What is it looking like? What is it smelling like? What is it tasting like? And being objective about it. You know, so right away, the first time someone's like, oh, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know about this wine. Like, what do you mean you don't know about it? It's not about that. It's really let's assess the wine objectively after we do that then we start to talk about now, if you like it, what do you like about it? If you okay, hold that, hold that thought right there because it's a perfect time because you might go here, but I'm gonna launch our first poll question. Uh, and this one is based upon what John is going to get to. And last week, no one got all the questions correct. So the pot rolled over. So there is a tremendous amount of money in the pot. So we're gonna launch this first poll question. So when discussing typicity, in wine, we are referring to a wine's typical personality characteristics, a wine's typical regional climate traits, or a wine's typical aromas and body attributes. And uh, this is one that is common knowledge for anybody that has gone through John's class. And we have Jeff and Jane Greasy in the house tonight who have gone through John's class. John, you can't answer. Um, and oh, no. Ivy who is part of mission control. She also can't answer, uh, but uh, this is, and I, I worded it, so you're gonna have to think a little bit, but John or uh, Jeff and Jane Greasy, just as we give about 10 more seconds for some answers to come in, they haven't missed a single sip. They have been here for all 36 of them. So uh, that in and of itself is, is a testament to either their complete lack of a social life or their adoration, fondness for all things wine. And I think it's the latter. So we're gonna close this in five, four, three, two, one. Interesting. 
So all over the board. So in the assessment of wine, John, when you are discussing typicity, what are you referring to? So in my books and also in my teaching, um, we talk about a concept that is, is very well known in the wine industry, a concept called typicity. And it's a fancy wine jargon word that really just mean that the wine is typical, as in not about its quality, but the wine is typical, as in it's showing its typical expected personality characteristics. Personality is the phrasing that we use to discuss the expectations of the given wine in a glass. For example, you would expect a Sauvignon Blanc to be much lighter bodied. You would generally expect a Chardonnay to be more fuller bodied, right? So we utilize this idea of understanding a wine's personality and trying to make sense of it as in its typical characteristics. So we generally break it into two actually, largely break it into two, which is aroma flavor components. And the second one is structural components. And we look at those and we assess the sort of parameters of acceptability, understanding with each one of those aspects for every single varietal that we discuss in our classes. Interesting. So let's walk through this Pinot Noir from that vantage point. All right, well, um, you know, I mean, typicity wise, like, yes, I mean, it, it smells and tastes like a Pinot Noir, but let me actually walk you through it more, more detailed. Um, first off, I wanna to touch on the glass that I'm drinking it out of. Uh, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to promote anything, uh, but I wanna show you two glasses. And you see the clear size difference in these glasses. And I wanna say that a glass really does matter. Um, I understand that at times you all may um, not have a choice. You're given what you're given or there's no glass. There's a styrofoam cup. A red solo cup. Yeah. Bottle, and it works, right? If you can, if you want to elevate not only the experience, but also the actual personality and the characteristics of the wine, select a glass. And I would suggest to you, if you're going red wine, a larger glass is always going to be better for so many reasons. This wine, this is the same wine. This is Zoetic Pinot Noir in, in, in two different glasses and it smells completely different. And I'm not BSing anybody. I'm a very much of a skeptical person when it came to this early on in my career where somebody said, well, glass can alter it or modify it. I'm like, oh, come on. It's just a vessel for drinking. Eh, it really does. I will tell you this smells similar but very different in terms of what I'm able to describe. I have many more um, descriptors, ability to understand, ability to assess the wine in this glass than I did in this glass. Opened the wine up, poured them both at the same time, swirled them around, gave them both air. This glass is larger and it's larger and it's important for two main reasons. And I wanna just tell you, and I know you wanted to know about the wine, but this wine and any wine that you're gonna be drinking that's sort of special to you, or you have a special moment, find a good glass. Good meaning large, especially for red. One reason this is important is because of the big bowl. The big bowl allows greater amounts of oxygen. That's important. The second thing, when you actually swirl this wine, um, what is being released is the alcohol. Alcohol is volatile. And when it's volatile, it goes off and it carries all of these aromas and flavors with it. You're really able to get more nuances of a given wine when you are smelling it and tasting it out of a glass like this. In addition, your alcohol 
will be impacted on your perception. In this glass, the alcohol is much smoother. It almost seems a bit softer than it actually is because the glass has the ability to kind of spread it out in your mouth, but also simultaneously introduce this oxygen, which has somewhat of a softening effect or impact, not only on alcohol, but also on tannin levels. So that aside, I looked at the wine and I wanna say thank you. It's a 2015 vintage date. You don't get 2015 vintage on the marketplace. If you're going to your retail store, whatever your, your physical retail store is to buy wine, you're not getting 2015. Um, I think this is a benefit because some wines age well, some wines don't. This wine subjectively is awesome. Objectively, let me tell you some specific things. First off, when I looked at it, um, we always assess color. Uh, there's a scale of color. I, I detect a ruby red rim on this wine. Ruby red means it's youthful. It's showing youth. It's not a really youthful wine, but it's showing youth. What that means is it's holding its age quite well. So that's a good thing. Now here's the other element. When I went to smell it, it was like, oh, well, it's highly aromatic um, and it's quite vibrant and intense. And I would attribute that not only to obviously the winemaker and their craft, their skill, but possibly also the element of the clone. Uh, the clone, this is a single clone Pinot Noir that they've chosen to use or that Kim has chosen. And it, it, it kind of expresses the typical expectation of what one would get from said clone. I believe it's like clone 777. To the average person, like, what does that mean? There are hundreds of clonal varietals of Pinot Noir and clones matter to winemakers and they can enhance certain characteristics that a winemaker may want to enhance. This wine, the aromatics is vibrant. So I want to say that specific aromas. I wrote some notes down uh, when I was smelling this. And first thing that we usually go to is fruit. And the fruit that were very prominent in this wine were uh, resembling the idea of cherries, black raspberries, black cherries, but that's just one category of aromas. There were so many more. The next category that was really coming out uh, were bake shop characteristics. When we talk about bake shop, we talk about bake shop sauces, bake shop spices. This wine had uh, undertones, subtle, subtle elements of vanilla and butterscotch, and it had more prominent smells of bake shop spices, almost like Chinese five spice powder. If anyone is familiar with that, it had some anise characteristics. It had some uh, coriander, clove, cardamom, really beautiful, beautiful in these spices. And then also very characteristic to Pinot Noir as well as this wine has to do with its earth. Um, you know, earth is a big, broad kind of category. How do you define that? It has these elements associated with sort of a, a dirt and soil. For this one, you almost had this element of like a potting soil. And it was, um, uh, what did I note about it? Oh, and a bit of like dust. So you have all of these layers of aromas and flavors. Now, all of that is very objective. None of that was flowery. None of that was like subjective. Those are tangibly there in the nose. And when we get that much going on, we generally refer to a wine as being complex. Complex right. like an onion where you have layers and layers and layers, crazy complex. In terms of the mouth, we talk about structure. 
So when you actually taste it, there's a process of tasting. Um, when you're tasting it, make sure that when you sip, you suck in oxygen. Make sure that you chew the wine in your mouth for at least five seconds, because it takes about five seconds for your palate to actually react to all of these structural, tactile sensations going on in your mouth. I want to demonstrate, if I may. It's your computer monitor. <laughs> Chewing. Three. And then spit or swallow. And I would never, I would never spit this wine. But uh, <laughs> even if I was at a tasting with like 200, 200 wines, which I often was in pre-COVID, uh, there's certain wines you don't spit. There's certain wines you spit. Yeah, this is the wine where you go back a second time to the same table to get a refill. Um, Structure-wise, um, I would say it is, um, first off, it has a lot of um, really good weight to the palate. So Pinot Noir, typically, when we talk about typicity, we typically talk about it being a light to medium-bodied red wine kind of in that framing of light to medium bodied. This certainly has more of the weight and it's more on that medium bodied side for a Pinot Noir. It definitely showcases more power, um, but it's a very sort of smooth and balanced wine. And I'm saying that partly because I think not, not only the skill and craftsmanship, but I think also the fact that it's five years old. Age does play a role. And age has the ability in some wines to make that wine better, more balanced in time, if you have the patience, right? right. So structure-wise, it's got this wonderful, uh, what I would call middle palate, this weight that sort of persists in your mouth when you taste it, and it just sort of lingers. Um, and that complexity that you smelled in the nose kind of carries over to the palate. Um, the tannin levels are low, uh, certainly very present, but low and very kind of um, smooth. Uh, okay, well, I, I'm, I'm going to interrupt because we're torturing Chef right now because he has no glass of wine. I know. It's, you know. It's, he, here's a last comment on the wine, and I think you're spot on. And, and I, I actually think we don't pay enough attention to vessels because here's one of the things that amazed me about this wine from it's 15.3 in alcohol. But to your point, in, in balance, I would imagine the alcohol would be much more pronounced in the smaller glass, in the smaller vessel, where you would feel it on the nose and you would feel it in your mouth. Uh, I don't get a lot of the heat burn associated with the glycerol or the alcohol of something that 15.3, and 15.3 is a little bit high for Pinot, it seems, but maybe it's the age and it's the softening, but it still has a lot of the fruit characteristics that you mentioned, but it's all, in my opinion, very well balanced because I don't feel any of the alcohol. From a, from a professional perspective, it is very well balanced. And I, you know, I was I was searching to see what kind of professional reviews were out there, and I, you know, I came across one, and I was like, nah, I don't really agree with that. As in, I think that they underrated the wine. To be honest with you, I think it was wine enthusiast, and I'm like, I think they just tasted it maybe too young. I wonder how this wine did taste when it was upon current release. Right. Um, but honestly, as a 2015, it's like it's beautiful. Good. Now, what would you and Chef is obviously doing this blind, but John, I'll, I'll rely on you to um, talk a little bit about any traditional items that you think would be a knockout uh, food item on a Thanksgiving table with this. And then chef, I'm going to tax your knowledge on, on some more. Uh, I, I do know people are talking about smoking turkeys and stuff like that. So we'll get to that in a second, but John, anything that comes to mind where you're like, this would be a home run with X. 
Yeah, you know, um, uh, Wook and I both love beef and we both love steaks. And I don't know if this is a part of your Thanksgiving meal or not, but sort of like throw that outside for a second. Um, you know, everyone seems to think cab, cab is great. And it, and it is, it goes very well with steaks. But when we talk about steaks, that's like broad and generic. Like, what do you mean? You don't pair a ribeye the same way you pair a filet mignon. Right. And you don't pair a medium rare steak the same way you would a medium well done steak. It, it is very, um, it is much more intricate than that. Uh, however, when we're talking steaks, this is uh, this is something that you'd pair with filet mignon that's prepared medium rare. Maybe you're serving it with um, a red wine demi sauce, uh, perhaps some sort of you know some sort of a pan sauce or reduction sauce. Adding in a little bit of additional fat on that plate is always a good thing too. In the in the in the in the idea of side components like a definite mm -hmm. potatoes or something of the sort. Um, but yeah, uh, right off the top, I mean, like I'm ordering a medium rare filet. This is, this is my, this is my wine. A lot of people think, oh, Pinot Noir, no way. The steak's too big. Pinot Noir, uh, with, with filet, filet's delicate. Filet. Filet's right. very yep. tender. You need a softer red, a lighter bodied red wine to medium bodied red wine, something on the softer side with tannin levels that works really nice with a filet. And, and I mean, that, I agree with you. And chef, this is something which you probably know in your sleep, but one of the things we, we talk about often at, at Cellar Angels is uh, vineyard sources matter because ingredients matter. And, sure. and, and the freshest ingredients, and, and John is, is right with regards to, you could get a filet, but if it's a store-bought filet or if it's a grass-fed filet and, and those sorts of things, all of that makes a difference. So when we talk mm -hmm. limited production wines, which is the only thing Cellar Angels you know, focuses and features, uh, that's a big component of it. And I would imagine the same thing is, is from a chef standpoint is ingredients make all the difference in the world. So when you're preparing things, specifically uh, the Thanksgiving meals that you're going to be preparing coming up, what are you looking for? What are some of the dishes that you're going to be making? So, and then talk to, me, talk to me about smoked turkeys. Oh yeah, for sure. So when we think about Thanksgiving and we're looking at more or less, let's just say a traditional American Thanksgiving, I think it really always goes back into balance. And I think sometimes people don't always think about that, but when you really understand why the meal always tastes delicious, it's not just because it's made with love. Interestingly enough, a lot of those components really balance each other out. And so when you factor in on how we taste as chefs, but also how we taste as people, it's always important that we always think about something sweet, something salty, something sour, something bitter, and then the last part being umami. And so when you think about having a Thanksgiving meal and all of the components, and if you really just focus on the classical items, if you will, uh, they really all balance each other out because when you think about the leftovers, and I think this would be a good example for this, most people make a sandwich from the leftovers. And when you think about what people do with it, meaning they'll get bread, whether it's from the rolls from the day before or they get bread of their choice, most people will toast it. So right there, you already have texture. And then you will have your turkey, which will also have a little bit of saltiness to it, but that's really where you get your umami, that savoriness, uh, in addition to the stuffing or dressing, depending on how you make it. And then you get that sweet and sour component from the cranberry sauce. And then what you can also do if you just want pure, pure bliss 
is just dip it in gravy each time you take a bite. But it kind of <laughs> goes back to show that people love texture. And whether we really understand it or not, it really tastes delicious because of all the balancing acts that each one plays off of. And so it kind of goes back into why people love eating a sandwich, but also chips as an accompaniment. But also the fact that some people also like to put chips in their sandwich. And yep. so when we look at what a good Thanksgiving meal needs to have and what type of ingredients and what type of food, I really think, you know, at a certain point, it's really going to be about, yes, you have these dishes, but then how can these dishes play off of each other? Yes, ingredients are very important, and I wholeheartedly agree. But for those that may not always have access to fresh ingredients or uh, ingredients in season, if you're working with the food that you have to work with, how does everything go together, at least in the knowledge that you have based on the flavors that you've already experienced? And so with the smoked turkey, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know, I was gonna say, so, cause that's a big, powerful flavor, the smoked mm -hmm. turkey. So, so how do you counteract that per se to strike that balance? So with wine, I, I and with wine for, too. For anybody that plans on using this turkey for let's just say the next day. And I know we're probably going one step ahead but I just want to throw it out there because I think even if you smoked a whole turkey, whether you've deep fried a whole turkey, uh, you probably most likely will have leftovers. And so if you wanted to save that turkey for something else, yes, it's great for a sandwich, but then you could also make it into a chili. Uh, you could also make it as part of a stew because you have that smoky flavor that could really pair nicely with a lot of other dishes. Now, if we're going to be eating it the day that we smoked it and that that's going to be part of the Thanksgiving dinner, uh, I would think about foods that will really kind of capture the smoke without really overpowering, but same thing that's being able to balance out. So when you look at a lot of smoked foods, uh, in addition to the smoke flavor, typically a lot of smoked foods are brined or they will be quote unquote pre-seasoned. So whether it has a sugar component or a salt component, is there any spice component to it? Because then that will also allow you to see what type of sauces that it can be served with. But if you wanted to still stick with traditional, I think a cranberry sauce will pair very nicely with the smoked turkey. Uh, that way it still balances out the flavor of the turkey with the smoke and the acidity will really pop everything out. So you'll really be able to capture the smoke. And uh, if you wanted to serve it with the side dish, you can really kind of go back to a barbecue restaurant if you really think about it. If you look at barbecue, your classical sides are cornbread, uh, you have macaroni and cheese, and you have more or less a slaw. And those are still great side dishes, especially with the smoked turkey. And I know you may not be wanting to serve a coleslaw, but I think a mac and cheese, uh, you can dress it up really nicely. Man, that will really make the smoked turkey really shine especially yeah, with can, the fattiness of the cheese. Yeah, and mac and cheese has come a long way since the Kraft macaroni boxes at 39. For sure. yeah. <laughs> John, what, what, based upon what Chef just said, what are some wines that you think would, would accentuate and, and complement that? Yeah, I get a lot of that, uh, a lot of questions every single year, as long as I can remember, uh, family, friends, students, professionals, all of it. Um, you know, it isn't just that you're pairing wine with food, you're pairing wine also with the people coming to dinner. And a lot of people possibly coming to dinner don't really know 
They don't really even know what they like. So you're really trying to find some wines that may have and offer diversity. And that's usually my approach. So um, I just got asked this question a day ago, maybe two days ago. Okay, we got to bring, you know, this person's bringing two wines, this person's bringing two wines. What should we get? Well, you want to do whites, reds, sparkling. We want to do two whites and two reds. That's easy. I'm not even thinking about the food. I'm thinking about altering in terms of the style of wines that you're going to choose to bring. And, you know, of course, they talk about the word typicity. You want to bring, why don't you go ahead and bring a nice, light, crisp, refreshing Sauvignon Blanc? Why don't you bring a nice, big, buttery, rich Chardonnay? Why don't you bring a very adaptable, light-bodied red, such as a Pinot Noir? And go ahead, for some of those, we're going to want really a big, bold, concentrated red, big tannin, big mouthfeel, such as a Cabernet Sauvignon. So we usually kind of stick to the big six grapes for uh, kind of purposes of this because they're most recognized, most accepted, most known. So, I mean, just in that you're offering diversity because if you really think about the Thanksgiving meal, there's a lot of everything. I mean, in my household, you know, we've got, of course, no different than most Midwesterners. We've got sweet potatoes, yams, we've got green beans, we've got turkey, gravy, stuffing, dressing, but then we have these Greek dishes. And all of that together, to be honest, how do you pair that? You just need something adaptable. And ultimately what is most important is that the people like the wine and they're happy with it, you know? And I, so I would suggest those, I'd suggest kind of going diversity, but if you really want reds, light reds tend to be the most adaptable. So a Gamay, uh, so if you might know the name Beaujolais, Beaujolais Nouveau, uh, very popular in the grocery stores uh, this time of year, but Beaujolais based wines, uh, also uh, Pinot Noir based wines would be great. And I, I like that you're, and you're right about the versatility of Beaujolais. And yes, it's, it's a fun ceremonial wine that basically marks the harvest and, and it's, it's nothing more, nothing less, right? But it does have a lot of versatility in it. I have a couple of questions uh, that I want to get to. Uh, challenges with some of the pairings. Roasted Brussels sprouts with bacon, blue cheese, and balsamic. I'm going to say beer. Um, no, you know, so... Oftentimes you've got these crazy things that are, are traditionally difficult to pair. Like, right, if somebody wants a soup, how do you pair a soup? Soup is liquid, right? Uh, I, it can be paired. Or people talk about, well, salad, how do you pair a salad? Actually, in our level two program, we actually do a tasting that is all about dispelling myths. People say you can't pair red wine with salad. That's not true. You just have to think out the process. So I, I try to dispel those notions. So when you have complicated dishes such as the one you described it's 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 like a lot of everything on there it sounds wonderful it sounds intense things with bubbles are very forgiving and very adaptable so that's one thing i would also suggest pink wines with bubbles are very adaptable and very forgiving and then of course there's going to be people that come over that probably don't like wine so beer beer is very adaptable especially dealing with you know some of the the light domestic lagers that most people are prone to, they're very adaptable. So, I mean, I would suggest wines with bubbles. I would suggest pink wines. I would suggest light bodied reds. And also when you have difficult ingredients like really salty stuff, really acidic things, um, tart acidic white wines can go pretty well as well. But I mean, Give me, what's, what's an example of a, of a like that? It's a hard thing to answer because it's such a huge topic. It's a very precise thing, but it deals with really specific ingredients, um, which leads to a larger conversation. But that's my sort of overall advice. What's what's a couple of examples of tart acidic white wine? 
Uh, so when we, if we use the big six grapes as a sort of foundation, um, I always teach with the big six grapes because they're the most recognized and then we branch off with other lesser known varietals. So if we say the big six grapes, there's three whites and three reds. The three whites in order of typical progression of body from lighter to fuller would be Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, Chardonnay. Now keep in mind, there are so many exceptions to this. We're talking typical body progression. There's always exceptions. I know like I've had a, you know, a light bodied Chardonnay. I've had a full bodied Riesling. I get it. But this is a typical normal progression of his starting point. And then three reds are Pinot Noir, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon in a typical progression of a building of body. And tart acidic whites? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, to answer your question. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc is a great example. Pinot Grigio is a great example. Pinot Gris, same as a Pinot Grigio, different name, same grapes, different location. A Gruner Veltliner, uh, I would suggest an Albarino, uh, Muscat possibly. Um, okay. You know, you start getting into these kind of branches of less known grapes, but if you want to know the most famous, uh, we would say crisp acidic or I call it crisp and youthful white wine would be a Sauvignon Blanc. And you had me at Albarino and Gruner Veltliner. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the idea is like, you know, we start with those big six because those are most known, but then you got to start branching off because not everybody wants to drink the same thing, right? People want to explore. Well, let me do this in, in closing, and I apologize to the networks. We're going to pay a fine for this, I'm sure, because the pre, the next cable show is waiting to get on. Um, John, any uh, final Thanksgiving wishes that you would like to share with, with, with the group here? Wishes? Well, I mean, I, I, um, we're, we're, a very, we're a very sharing community here at yeah. Cellar Angels. So. I, I would, well, I guess a couple of things. I'd say thank you for having me on. Thank you for allowing me to speak about my passion of, of, of wine and education and helping to provide just a little bit of tidbit of my world and my life. And I hope that it seems to be a part of your life since you're tuning in. Um, so I'd say thank you for having me on. And uh, thank you for the wine. It's a, a very lovely wine, uh, both subjectively and objectively. And, um, you know, uh, everyone, I guess, would say uh, be safe and um, make good decisions over the holidays and, you know, enjoy and be for your family. And Chef, I'm going to ask you the same question. And we didn't get to Chef's background, but for those of you in the Midwest, specifically the Chicago area, and even more importantly, uh, Wheeling area, and we all know that Wheeling is the city with feeling. Um, chef trained with, well, there's a very, very famous restaurant, and having grown up in Glenview and Deerfield, uh, there was no more famous restaurant in the 70s and 80s than Le Francais, and it was known not only throughout the United States, but really throughout the world, and, and Chef was inspired by and, and had the opportunity to train with Chef, I'll let you tell the story because I think if memory serves, it's kind of what, what planted the seed for you. Yes. Oh, thank you. Um, the person that I was training with uh, was, in fact, the chef at Le Francais, and not necessarily Jean Bonchet, but the chef that took over for him. And I trained with Roland Licioni, who is also the chef currently at Le Nomads. And he was my very first mentor, if you will. Uh, kind of took me under his wing in a weird, weird way, because at first I didn't think he liked me. <laughs> but um, I realized later on it was real, just tough love. And we ended up becoming good friends. And 
we still communicate regularly. Um, but he really, really inspired me and kind of catapulted my career, if you will. Uh, just kind of working with him really showed me a lot and what it takes to be a chef uh, and just really a good worker uh, and the skills needed to be a chef and manager. Yeah, I mean, I don't know you, if you could have a, a more impressive type of person take you under their wing with, with that type of pedigree. So that's, that's fantastic. And what a great way to get actually, um, you know, your feet wet, so to speak. That's, in, that's sure. impressive. Isn't that? Any uh, Thanksgiving wishes? Yeah, I would like to thank you and your beautiful, beautiful Mission Control, Denise, for having me. Uh, I'm glad that I could also share this with John. So John, thank you for also asking me to be on the show with you. So thank you so much. And for all of the listeners, uh, for Seller Angels, I wish you a very safe and happy Thanksgiving. And uh, I hope that all of you will truly enjoy all the food that you make and that everybody will be inspired to also make more foods and maybe foods that they've never tried before. No, and I think that's good. It's funny when I saw this on the schedule that you two were going to be on. I mean, first of all, the Thanksgiving episode every year is our, our most watched, most tuned in episode, and everyone loves the Thanksgiving episode. So it's, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I've been told that this is our first episode ever for Thanksgiving. So <laughs> I, I, I apologize for that. Uh, and, and Mission Control says, and probably the last. Um, so what I, what I do want to do is is end on a celebratory note with our final poll question. So uh, this one, John and Wook don't know the answer to, at least I don't suspect you know the answer to. And it is, it does involve uh, a celebration because we did talk about sparkling wine a second ago. So for those of you feeling a little guilty about wine quarantining and maybe your consumption is on the rise over the last months, have no fear. Here's your feel good consumption fact. How many bottles of Paul Rojar champagne did Winston Churchill consume in his lifetime? 750 bottles, question. 750 bottles, 42,000 bottles, or 57,500 bottles of champagne. So uh, this does, I think, test the theory that you can never have enough bubbles. Um, and, and it does, you know, this will actually make you feel good about maybe having a glass or a bottle or two a night in the pandemic because uh, I, I might be giving it away, but uh, I think you're going to be in for a treat. So I'll give this five, four, three, two, one. John and Chef, any guesses? What was that? I, I was going to pick the last one, the 57,000. That was with the high number. Interestingly enough, the audience is all over the board. But according to Winston Churchill himself, he validated the number of 42,000 bottles, which equates to a bottle and a half a day for every day of his adult life. Wow. <laughs> so, the good news there. There's a lot of in line. Yeah, the good news there is that we're all way behind. And we've, and, and we've got a lot to celebrate. And so uh, with that, and we went way over, so I apologize, but when you have two great guests with two great um, you know, deal of content, it, it is something that we, we want to share with you. 
And I'd be remiss if I didn't again, thank you all. Thank you, John. Thank you, Chef Wook. It was so fascinating to hear you guys talk and we appreciate that. Thank you to Mission Control. Thank you to our sponsors, Zoetic, our wardrobe sponsor. Uh, and everyone be safe, uh, choose intelligent decisions, eat more than you should, uh, definitely share with others, be good to one another. And I promise you, this will be the last of the strange Thanksgiving. So we'll, we won't see you next week because we're taking Friday off and we will see you December 4th with Blue Rock. Be good, everybody. Thanks so much. Cheers. <laughs>